I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of and fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. We'll get the whole show now. Yeah. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You just set sail on a voyage to discover the who, what, why, and how they did it via in-depth discussions with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and spatial storyteller from Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where's the compass taking us today, Mel? Today, our journey is truly a global one as we get to catch up with my good buddy and also the president of Zeitgeist Design Production, none other than Ryan Harmon. Ryan cut his teeth working alongside such theme park legends as Tony Baxter and our friend Tom Morris. He's won multiple Thea Awards and now leads his own team of creatives who dream up unique and groundbreaking experiences for parks in China, South Korea, Indonesia, Vietnam, Dubai, and Nigeria. Ryan's part of the current generation of themed entertainment creatives who are taking the show on the road. Uh, we've actually had a chance to enjoy several collaborations with our team at Storyland Studios, and we always have fun in his sandbox. <laughs> well, you know me, I love to travel, so I can't wait to see what happens as we go around the world with Ryan Harmon. Okay, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Well, Mel, I have to admit, I have a pretty narrow view of what theme parks are like in other parts of the world because I've never been to a theme park outside of the United States. I kind of think from what everything I've seen that I'm missing out. <laughs> uh, you might be right there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, you've been to a lot of them uh, and you've uh, taken part in the design of some There's only so of many them. theme parks along the jungle rivers of the world. I know, right? that's true. They are, <laughs> there's only a few stops on the, the jungle. Next stop. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, yeah. So, here's our opening question What do you think is the greatest challenge exporting themed entertainment stuff, parks, and, and all that to cultures around the world? Well, you know, the there was enough challenges associated with the first generation, I think, of, of basically exporting America, you know, yeah. and American stories and IPs. And, and, you know, when you go to Disneyland Paris, it literally is a little chunk of Orlando, you know, drop kicked into the beet fields of Paris uh, or Tokyo or whatever. But I, I think the real challenges for the next generation is um, kind of making the stories their own, you know, uh, making them soil specific and and uh, relatable uh, and and celebrating distilling the the unique special sauce of each uh, individual uh, people in place. So uh, can't wait to see where that goes in the future myself. Yeah, uh, and I know uh, you've been working on some projects with them uh, with in a, in a variety of different places. Uh, some of them are um, secret, some of them are out there. Um, but uh, really, I mean, it's exciting to see that uh, in our world, uh, Cultures that didn't have access to any, you know, a lot of different kinds of entertainment. You know, you think about um, some of the stuff in Middle East and now just just embracing and soaking up all of this uh, really great technology and, and storytelling and uh, giving people leisure time, which is something we in the 20th century America uh, really 
took a hold of and soaked up. But uh, now we get to see the rest of the world doing that, and they're doing it uh, at a high pace. It's mm-hmm. really growing fast. Yeah, sometimes it's quality over or quantity over quality, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah, that's no, fantastic. Well, this is like exactly the type of challenge that Ryan Harmon faces all the time. So let's dive in. Here's our globe-trotting interview with creative director, writer, and president of Zeitgeist Design and Production, Ryan Harmon. Well, such a awesome morning here, and what a great time and a great space to be in, uh, Ryan. We're uh, excited to finally uh, get you uh, in your beautiful home here. You got to tell us a little bit. I feel like I'm at the Tama Shanter. I'm like in this amazing time machine. Um, what? Where are we? Yeah, we are in Altadena, California. We are up uh, towards the foothills, and we're in a 1925 French country home um, that I purchased. I feel like about Russell Crowe in, in uh, Province. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, one of my favorite yes. uh, yes, Ridley Scott movies. It's decorated with a, a number of items that I um, purchased from a Knott's Berry Farm auction last year, <laughs> which uh, has a lot of history before it even found its way to Knott's, and then obviously spent decades at Knott's on display. So we've got carousel horse. We have a, <laughs> a grandfather clock that was imported from the Netherlands wow. from 1740. We have an arcade uh, weight machine. We've got an old 1920s radio, yeah. all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> the exposed wow. timbers and everything. Give it a <laughs> yeah. sense of space that you don't yeah. expect just uh, stepping in off the street. Right. Very charming. Yeah, very charming. Well, I'm also <laughs> blown away by uh, so many of our uh, crossing of the stream, shared interest. We got a lot of the same coffee That's table friends, We got the same tiki <laughs> mugs from Traders. Yeah, yeah. We, we definitely are friends, and uh, a lot of uh, mutual friends go back. We've got some collaborations we'll get to talk about. But uh, I remember the first time I met you because I was a little bit of a fanboy stalker because I remember when I was still in film school back right. in the 80s wow, yeah. uh, reading uh, one of your Disney News articles, uh, and I, I think you were probably... Uh, oh, there we go. Like one of the, the classic blasts from the past, Grandfather Clocks. Um, but I remember days. that uh, you were uh, the, one of the youngest Disney Imagineers, if not yeah. the youngest Disney yeah, Imagineer. Yeah, I, I was so honored and lucky um, that I dreamed of being a Disney Imagineer since I was probably in third grade mm, when I first yeah. learned about it. And I remember literally doing all my book reports on Walt Disney biographies as a very young child. And uh, starting college at Cal State University Northridge and majoring in film also. And being a writer uh, ever since third grade also, I had been winning all the poetry and, you know, story contests and everything. And uh, one of my teachers at Cal State Northridge, an acting teacher, actually uh, offered me an internship at a TV production company. And I took the job working for free, you know, once a week. He got let go and another woman came in and noticed I was kind of bored and said, what else do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'd love to work for Disney. I just love everything about it. When I was a kid, I would run into the preview center and look at the models of Discovery Bay. And it's just something I've dreamed of. And even also as a kid in my neighborhood, I would put on shows for the neighborhood kids in the garage and create arcades for my two brothers 
characters. And <laughs> I've just always created experiences. It's very strange. And by the way, Walt and I have never stood on the planet at the same time. Right. Yeah, he yeah, died right. two months before I was born. Wow. So anyway, she introduced me to a gentleman named George Head, yeah. who had been at Disney probably since late Walt Disney World, early Epcot days. And George invited me I to Imagineering. I was just with George last week really? <laughs> at the, in Orlando. Yep. George invited me to Imagineering for lunch. And he was too busy to have lunch, but he gave me a tour. And there was the Epcot model wow. in all its glory wow. in a massive warehouse with every tree and all this the buildings. This just a few years after opening then. This huh? was 87, yes. Okay. Five years after wow. opening. And I knew it was like coming home, like I'm getting chills talking about it. Like I was going, wow, this is where I belong. This is, this is what I was meant to be. And where'd you say you grew up in Chatsworth in the Valley. So George offered me the opportunity to be his assistant for a summer. And I quit. I was working at an insurance company in Northridge. (laughs) I quit my job and drove 20 miles every day. I was there on time every day. And and at that time, it was still a lot of the original Imagineers walking the halls. I mean, Claude Coates was still sitting in his office. I would go sit with him, Herb Ryman, Sam Kim, John Hench, you know, obviously Marty Scalar. So I had an opportunity to sit and learn from these people and hear the stories about Walt and see them open the drawer and pull out the big rock candy mountain ride that they got built and uh, and get to meet with the second gen Imagineers who were Bob Weiss and Tony Baxter and those gentlemen. And for all intents and purposes, I was considered the first of the third generation. I was 20 years old when I started and uh, could not drink at the patio parties <laughs> <laughs> and was just thrown into this world where I was being flown first class to Orlando and you could borrow a car and drive it to Disneyland. <laughs> I was walking through Pirates of the Caribbean with the water drained yeah. and going backstage at the Haunted Mansion. And, you know, for this was just a y- few years after I had gone to Disney World for the first time. Yeah. And so it was just so strange to be that young and thrown into this world where I was very well accepted and I think prospered quite a bit just using the creativity I had developed uh, since I was a child. So, yes, that was a long way to answer your question. Yeah, Yeah, it was amazing. And I've never looked back. You know, it's just something I was seriously born to do and I love it. Well, George uh, has gone on to have quite a legacy with uh, starting the program at Savannah College of Art and Design and how to mentor to so many. Yeah, George is truly uh, one of the nicest people. people. I've ever met. That's awesome. Just a wonderful guy. So, I mean, how about that journey? I mean, through Imagineering, how, how long were you there? And what were some of your um, favorite I was uh, there, contributions? Yeah, I was there. I started in June of 87. And I didn't graduate college for three more years. So they allowed me to work full-time during summers and vacations and part-time during school days. So I would get to school at 7.30, get out of there by 11, run into the office, grab lunch, and work till 6 o'clock. And uh, I was given the opportunity at first to be a show designer on the Disney MGM Studios. So I was the assistant on that project to the whole team. Bob Weiss was leading that. We had Tom Fitzgerald. Richard Vaughn, um, a number of amazingly talented people. So I got to edit videos and put presentations together. And we still had slides back then. So I would oh, put slideshows together and really learn not only the, the Kirks art of- were still involved back then. What's that? The Kirks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Kirk was there and Steve Kirk and Kathy Kirk was actually my boss yeah. at the beginning. So I learned presentation skills. Mm-hmm. I learned the design process. 
and got to actually uh, go out on site during construction. And they brought me into what they called company relations for a while, which was kind of PR marketing. So I would write bios mm. on all the lead people that would go to the press. I would write press releases. <laughs> I would, and that's how I got into writing for Disney magazine. Right. And for that, we started a magazine in-house called the WDIEYE. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I was one of the founding editors or writers on that too. So if you find any of those old uh, And for old kids issues. today to understand pre-internet. Right. right. Yeah. This was it, man. This oh, was yeah. the only way that was you the only, yeah. got yeah. a glimpse under yeah. the under the hood. Right. Disney the Magazine mail. was the only yeah. official publication. Right. And literally I wrote to the editor, said I I think I was already at WDI, maybe it was even before, but I think it was when I started and said, Hey, I'm a writer. You know, I just branded myself a writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she said, you know, show me some samples. And I did. And next thing you know, I was writing cover stories on the opening of California Adventure. And I did a cover story on the Lion King and I'd got to go across the street and interview all the animators, Don Hahn and um, I forgot some of the other guys, but um, yeah, it was just an incredible opportunity to also do that PR side as well. Mm-hmm. But I kept pushing to really get into the creative. And so they ultimately put me into the show writing department. And I worked on a project called Plectu's Fantastic Galactic Review, <laughs> which was a reimagining of the Carousel Theater at yeah. Tomorrowland where literally I got to pitch my show to Michael Jackson. And I will never forget, they had us watch all these (laughs) videos and we saw how people screamed and cried like the Beatles when they met him. And he walks in with his glove and his sunglasses. (laughs) And I was just, I I literally did not know who I was, where I was. (laughs) I was standing up there in front of, you know, these guys gave me this opportunity to present. Rick Rothschild and Chris Runco were heading that up and I begged to be able to present. (laughs) And I thought I just completely messed it up by saying absolutely nothing for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) But it was probably a half a second, right? Were words coming out of your mouth? (laughs) Yeah, I did it. I did it. But I got to oversee a rocking robot. Uh, You know, the theater would turn, and we designed each scene just like America Sings. So I had a rock band called, uh, what are they called, Supernova? And I actually wrote a song and all the lyrics that they would perform. It was amazing. uh, Guitar players. Yeah. A couple of guitars. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a Scorpion song. It was called Rock You Like a Supernova. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Right? after rock you like a hurricane yeah, yeah, that. But, but even today the lyrics uh, I still look at it going wow I was pretty good back then <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that never happened unfortunately the uh, cost estimate came back too high for an existing facility yeah and, one of those great Tomorrowland 2055 yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah. so I was there for all of that yep. um, what else did I work on uh, water, water park concepts all kinds of things that sadly most of them never happened I think in my five years originally there the only thing I did that got installed were plaques that I wrote for the <laughs> Disney gallery. Right? Oh, really? Because <laughs> uh, I used to work a lot with Van Romans, who yeah, was in yeah, charge that, of the art program right. there. So, uh, But what, what it was for me was a microcosm of the industry where I was there. And at the time, there was no such thing as security badges and locked areas. So once you were in, you had the opportunity to <laughs> go <laughs> sit with anybody and talk to anybody. Yeah. So I fully took advantage of that, just being a sponge yeah. at that age. And any chance you have to meet and speak with 
you know, people, these were gods to me. I don't yeah. care about rock stars or movie stars, yeah. but people like Sam McKim, who mm. drew all the maps and designed all these rides, and Mark Davis was walking around. And, I mean, these were my rock stars. These were mm -hmm. my gods. So to sit with, talk with them, ask them stories, get them to autograph things, that's what I did. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, that got me a little in trouble. <laughs> because, <laughs> because as a member of the writing division, um, people as producers would call and, and say, hey, I need a writer on this project. And I had befriended quite a few people. And the story I heard was that a lot of people would call and request me. And my manager oh. didn't like that because he had to fill the spaces with other people. To me, that's success. Right, exactly. <laughs> to him, building I was, yeah, yeah, I was disturbing the process or whatnot. Mm. And that apparently led to him letting me go um, oh, in wow. May of 1992, right before, right as Paris was opening, mm -hmm. they had a major layoff. Wow. And even though I had been like the biggest cheerleader, uh, cheerleader yeah. of the place and got involved in the history and the magazines and producing historical events and working on projects and getting to know everybody, yeah. uh, they walked me out. Wow. And that was the saddest day of my life, I even bet. to this day. And that... I will always hold that one man responsible for that shift in my career yeah. because I would have loved to have stayed there for decades and grown with the company and, yeah. and taken my enthusiasm and everything I love about Disney and gone on to do great things. Okay, so that's, that makes for a good transition just, just because out of uh, you know, the ashes comes something new. Correct. And so without that, unfortunately, you, you got, went on to uh, make it your life. Uh, yes, to to build and and creative direct and, and so many different things. Creatively lead projects that actually are getting done <laughs> and built. <laughs> yeah, true. probably have a few less layers of uh, management review. Yeah, and, oh yeah, and political you know ups right. and downs. <laughs> well, it was shocking, right? When I left, I really had no idea because you're so insulated at Disney. You don't know there's actually an industry, and there wasn't right. much of one. That we're talking '92, yeah. so the only game in town was really Landmark Entertainment Group which was in North Hollywood, led by Gary Goddard and Tony Christopher. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so I reached out to them and immediately began working with them. Uh, I also met a gentleman named Phil Hedema, mm -hmm. who was working with another amazing talent named Dale Mason. And they were also in North Hollywood, right across the street from Landmark, yeah. <laughs> developing something that became a little part called Islands of Adventure. So I had an amazing opportunity to work with those two on what was then called Toon Lagoon. And uh, we developed a whole Warner Brothers uh, Looney Tunes land that had the most amazing attractions that no one's ever seen. Right. So someday they should put that artwork and those concepts out. Uh, and then I met another gentleman named Craig Hanna. And Craig was working at a company in Marina Del Rey called Kevin Biles Design. And he literally found me, I forgot how, and there was a photo of me in Disney News, and I had long rocker hair back <laughs> yeah. then, and I was wearing my Tomorrowland 2055 coat, because I yeah. did a story on it, with my friend David Mumford, who passed away a number of yeah. years ago. And so uh, David and I were pictured in there, and Craig said to me, "Are you the the dorky looking one or the long with long hair one with long hair?" <laughs> oh, thanks for the confidence. <laughs> so Craig and I met, and we hit it off, and we worked together for almost a decade at Kevin Biles, then at Jack Morton, and then he went in house at Universal and brought me over there. So I was pretty busy. It was. 
a real rarity, apparently, to be an Imagineer out on the street mm. in that era, right. especially somebody who came from the creative development and writing division, because there was really, I think, only one other person got let go from our group. Mm. And so I was working nonstop, and I tripled what I was earning literally within a week or two wow. from getting let go. Um, so you're going to go so. back and thank the guy that uh, let you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I still love Disney. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, and, and luckily, I did have a chance if about 20, 2009 to finally get back in there and had a chance to develop a number of new attractions for the R&D group and yeah. then got put in charge of a land on Shanghai Disneyland and spent about a year uh, or more working on a bunch of projects. And then just uh, a month ago, I was there for a couple of months developing some new stuff. Yeah. So, um, it's and you've a, been able to get back over to Shanghai and experience yeah, I've been to Shanghai uh, the fruit twice. of some of those efforts. And Yes. What's yeah. your, just as a, I just got to switch gears yeah. just as a pure Disney fan. Right. Um, what a compare contrast. The Walt's little magical little park right. in Orange Groves, you know, for Daddy <laughs> and his daughters yeah. compared to just anything in mainland China, but particularly Shanghai. What, what's your executive summary compare contrast of those two parks? Uh, well, Disneyland they're totally different, totally different types of experiences built for totally different audiences and in totally different eras. So um, while I love, I will always believe Disneyland Authentically is, Chinese, but distinctly Right, Disney. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Still Disney? Right, right. Well, it's true, but Disneyland, I, I often have arguments with friends who went to Florida first, and they right. say, oh, Disney World's so much better, it's got big castle, and yeah. and I'm like, well, but Disneyland is charming, and it was the first time any of this had ever even been conceived, and why would you have this Victorian Main Street with this you know, fairy tale castle at the end of it. It makes absolutely no sense, but it works. Yeah. And it was done by art directors, not by architects. Yeah. And so for me... The, 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 the castle is a, a strategic scale. Right, because exactly. Because it's that forced perspective that makes it right. look further away. And yeah, so there's a, a different emotion, I think, when I go to Disneyland, knowing the history and just feeling the design versus Disney World and definitely versus Shanghai, which um, because I worked on it, I saw the evolution of it. And I think it's there's some amazing attractions there. The scale is massive. Um, I don't necessarily agree with not having uh, park-wide transportation. The two times I've been there, once it was probably 100 degrees and 100% humidity, and I would have done anything to get into an <laughs> air-conditioned train, monorail, yeah, Skyway right. bucket, anything to get across that park. And the other time I was there, it was below freezing. Yeah, and right. same thing. Like, can I be inside? Why am I waiting in these outdoor queues? Um, we went to see the nighttime show. We could not even stand outside and watch it. Wow. It was, I thought my ears were going to break off. So, <laughs> cool. you know, so there's... <laughs> I, you know, I don't think that they built it in the way that we design a lot of our parks now, looking at how many people are expected to come on mm -hmm. an annual basis. You have a certain amount of attractions, and that park seems to have three or four major attractions, while most of the other ones, at least that we do, might have 12 or a lot more. So um, I'm glad that they're looking to expand. I think they just opened the Toy Story Land, yeah. and I know they've got plans to do some other exciting things. So hey, they're hugely successful, and it, it is a beautiful park. And that Pirates of the Caribbean ride is probably the best ride I've ever been on in my life. Thank you, Luke Mayran, for that, and Nancy Cerruto. <laughs> but, yeah, just an amazing attraction. And, and Tron, obviously. And, yeah. 
Uh, It almost does seem to become Disney standard operating procedure now, regardless of the scale, whether it's a Shanghai Disneyland or a uh, a more of a half day, you know, second gate to to open kind of a bare bones minimum, you know, two or three tickets and then kind of, you know, uh, have that ability to do the CapEx reinvestment year after right. year to kind of keep the yeah. the numbers going. Whereas a lot of the, the foreign parks we get to collaborate on, you know, it's like they want that critical mass opening day, yeah. you know, big splash to create the word of mouth. Right. But, well, there's almost a science to it too. I mean, we work a lot with uh, John McDonald and his team at Management Resources. And when we know we're getting three or four million a year, let's say, there's a, a formula for how many major attractions, you know, e tickets, D tickets, E tickets, food and beverage, retail, all that sort of thing. And I was just a little surprised when I went to Shanghai and it seemed like there were five hour queues for the soaring ride. Yeah, that's and not going, exactly uh, what we program into our <laughs> no, spreadsheets. No, these so it's. You know, and maybe there was an issue that one of the theaters was down or something. I don't really know, but it was there were long waits in hot or cold weather. <laughs> so. Well, so it's been a few decades since uh, the '80s, uh, yes. and you've had a chance to do some fun stuff. Anything oh, yes. that you're particularly uh, proud of uh, that uh, you want to talk about? Or? Yeah, I've been very lucky in my career to work with again some of the most amazing talent in our industry. Um, uh, the major players at most of the major design firms. I worked with Gary and Tony in their heyday. I worked with Bob Rogers. I worked with Craig Hanna, like I said, at multiple companies with Phil Hedema and Dale Mason, uh, with Jack Rouse. Um, I forgot who I'm leaving out of here, but uh, I've had a chance to really work closely with a lot of these people and their teams. And at some point, um, I was working on these great projects and clients were coming to me and saying, hey, you know, I know I hired this architecture firm, but in the meetings, it seems like you understand it more than they do. They're focused more on the facility and you're telling me a story and that's what I want. And that happened a number of times. And I started to think, well, maybe I can do this by myself, you know, and put together my own team. And through the evolutionary process that emerged around 2010, well, I take that back. It started around the turn of the century (laughs) where uh, I joined with Brian Edwards from Edwards Technologies, and we formed a company called Story Department. And we had met, uh, I had done the Hercules and Xena attraction. I know that dates me at (laughs) Universal Universal Studios in Florida. Um, But I met Brian there and Brian said, hey, we do AV and media and a lot of companies are coming to us, but they don't, we don't do the show. We just kind of put the equipment together. So what if we partner, you do the show, we'll do the hardware and and it'll be a wonderful marriage. And so we formed Story Department and it was, we did um, a project at the um, Opry Mills Mall in Nashville. We did, um, I can't remember. We did a a bunch of different media-based projects, uh, which were all very successful. And before that, uh, I did the Manatees, The Last Generation Mm -hmm. show for SeaWorld Orlando with Craig Hanna. And that was there for 19 years. It just closed when Turtle Trek opened. Mm -hmm. And it was voted the number one attraction in Orlando in 19... Uh, 90 or 91 because Universal had opened. No, this had to be 93 or 94, but Universal had opened and none of the attractions worked. (laughs) There was was only one or two that was actually operational. So this article, I remember, you know, poo-pooed what Universal (laughs) had done and said, the best thing happening right now is this manatee Mm -hmm. show. And I think part of that, a lot of what 
my reputation is amongst some is that I bring emotion into a lot of attractions. And that attraction was about manatees and how they were getting hurt by speedboats yeah. in Orlando. And so I thought, what if we're in the water and up on the shore, we see a dad holding hands with a little girl and she's like, daddy, what's a m -m manatee? <laughs> and he tells her and these things are swimming around and it just goes from there. And it made, it really touched people. And then they went out and they saw the real manatees. Um, and I also did that with, I did the Titanic official movie tour with uh, Lexington Scenery and 20th Century Fox. And I didn't want you to just go to the boat, <clears throat> excuse me. So I started <clears throat> under the water in modern day and you see the wreck of the Titanic under the sea and you go through a big rip, you know, a tear in its hull. And as you're going through this corridor, time goes backwards mm -hmm. and you walk out into the grand stairway and you are back on the yeah. Titanic and you go through all the different sets and costumes and interactives. And I wanted to end it again emotionally. So I put you on a, um, what are those boats called? The, uh, <clears throat> the rescue boats. Yeah, lifeboats. Lifeboats. And we, I, I made a number of scrims, and I thought it'd be fun to do dimensional media where it's farther away and closer. Mm. And so we re-edited uh, the finale of the film on multiple planes. Mm -hmm. And it was started with the sinking of the ship and Jack dying, and then a celebration, looking back, a montage of Jack and Rose's romance. Mm. And then, of course, it ends with the song, uh, the, yeah. our, Your Heart Will Go On, or whatever, and then you turn around, and there's the Heart of the Ocean diamond oh. in a case with light. And Roberta Perry, one of my you know, best buddies and industry icons, she cried. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was her company that yeah, did yeah. all the AV. Uh, so, uh, so I love that because when I go see a, a good film, like let's say A Star is Born recently or something, you feel a roller coaster of emotions yeah. and you walk out of there going, wow, I laughed, I cried, I was angry. You know, that yeah. if it made you feel, that's a quality experience. Yeah, that's right. And we lose that a lot in themed entertainment where it's very passive or... Um, or it's the same exact thing where something goes terribly wrong and we need you to volunteer and save yeah. the day. And it's just, that makes me yawn. Yeah. Um, I want something that's going to touch me, you know, emotionally. And, um, and that's what I try to do. So, um, so to answer your question, yeah, there was the manatee attraction. We did the, um, the Opry Mills project. We did Cerritos Library here. Uh, I did all the interactives and media for that. It's not your run-of-the-mill library. Um, no, it's the world's <laughs> first experience yeah. library. Yeah. Um, the Hercules and Xena show, which was really fun to work with the real actors. And we sent a team to New Zealand and shot our own episode. And we all probably forget that those were the two top shows in America yeah. at that time. So yeah. we were working with this very successful IP. And, uh, and it's been fun also through my career, not that it's anywhere near over, but I've had a chance to jump back and forth between completely original uh, attractions and parks and IP-based. Yeah, right. So I was in-house at Warner Brothers um, after I left the KBD and Landmark world. I was director of show development and got to work on an entire park in Germany. So here I got the chance to conceive and write and develop um, I did a Maverick stunt magic show. I did a <laughs> Gremlins ride where I was told I had to put um, Alf, 
the TV alien into Gremlins, right? Don't ask me. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, so confusing. That, that was one of those times in my career where I'm like, it wasn't supposed to be this way. <laughs> How do you make somebody cry like that? Maybe just the concept. I don't know. I did a never ending story raft ride. Oh, wow. I did a Looney Tunes attraction where I was told that I could not have any music. And I said, really? Have you heard of Carl Stalling? Yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs> How do you have a Looney Tunes attraction with no music? <clears throat> so I was told no. And when I went and wrote it, because I left the project before it was finished, all you heard were the pneumatics of the animatronics throughout the entire ride. Oh, so <laughs> it's they didn't put music. Um, but yeah, I had a chance to do that. I worked on the Space Center Bremen project in Germany for BRC, which a lot of companies had the chance to work on. Well, I think that was our actual mutual introduction was through uh, Bruce Green. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Who had been, uh, yeah, Bruce worked with us. Uh, he with, he yeah, was the architect and I was uh, the creative director. Yeah, and yep. uh, Bruce and I worked together for, geez, at least 10 years or yep. so. Yeah, no, he's great. One of our main architectural partners. And Robin Hall yep. uh, also worked with Bruce on a lot of Warner Brothers stuff. So just tons of... Yep. Great connections. We're actually uh, excited. We were just talking earlier about um, an attraction that's getting ready to open up in December uh, in LA-ish called the Poverty Encounter. Right. That, uh, Robin helped us out. On. Right. Really excited to talk about that uh, in future episodes. But um, so then the founding of Zeitgeist. What uh, so, to that? And what year was that? So in 2010, I had an opportunity to do a part called Robot Land in Korea. And I formed a company called Delaney Harmon with my friend, Tim Delaney, who I had known for two decades almost at that point. But really, we became close Mr. friends. Mr. Tomorrowland. Yes, we became good <laughs> friends on the uh, Shanghai project yeah. <clears throat> and had lunch almost every day and just really got along well. And so when I had this opportunity, Tim had just gotten let go from Disney after 33 some odd years. And I thought, wow, what a great opportunity to bring in Mr. Tomorrowland <laughs> to work on a robot project. Uh -huh. And so we formed a company and we rented a space and put an for, amazing for team listeners, together. This is the uh, the guy that invented the future that never was and at Discovery Land in Paris and yes. did the whole steampunk uh, uh, the, the timeless version of uh, tomorrow right, that Discovery doesn't Land. age and yes. crack yes. that nut that uh, Disney executives for decades could not figure out. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. yeah. So unfortunately, this was my first endeavor sort of on my own, um, dealing with clients and you know, it's for those looking to work. Um, there's with, a creative aspect of the business, and then there's yes. a meat grinder, cash yes. flow, the, how much gas is in the tank, how right. much is oxygen is in the And what's sort of unique about me is my father is a CPA. Oh, wow. So I grew up with an accountant um, no guiding me, yet I'm this creative guy. So, in a sense, I straddle the line. I can wow. do the business yeah. and do the creative. You got a left and a right yes. brain. <laughs> yes, which, which creates battles sometimes. But on the, in this case, I thought I had negotiated a great deal. We had a contract. We were working. It was like, again, and the, the angels sang again, like when I started at Disney. And I felt like, wow, I've again yeah. found a calling. I love assembling teams. I love putting it together and managing it. It was just wonderful. And unfortunately, the client stopped paying. 
Oh, dear. And this was my one and only experience. That never happens in this industry. <laughs> well, I didn't I know am. that. <laughs> I did not know that. This was uh, eight or nine years ago in my first foray into running a company by right, myself, right. basically. and Assuming it, the best yeah, in, in people. Yeah, it's like, we're going to get how much? I mean, yeah. this is amazing. Let's buy more computers. Let's we've, we've hire more people. We put our guts on the table, <laughs> yeah. handed it over right. to you. <laughs> so it put us in a position where we didn't have any money in the bank, and yet the client still wanted deliverables, and I still had a team. And that was a very, very difficult time mm. that sadly... Uh, separated Mr. Delaney and I, which I still lament. And uh, that led to the birth of Zeitgeist because I had played with the name and done some work as that name prior to Delaney Harmon. But as soon as Delaney Harmon folded, I um, made Zeitgeist a a legal corporation and uh, just started peddling my wares under that name. I had never had a website before, so I looked into starting a website and the other thing is, over that time and the years prior, it was primarily me uh, sitting, you know, right here at, yeah. at the table, doing all the concepts, doing the writing, mm-hmm. maybe calling in a friend to do a sketch or something. But I really wanted to evolve to a company. And I had a friend named Becky Kiefer, who I had met uh, when I was working at the Grove for Rick Caruso. That was another one of my roles as sort of the in-house creative for Caruso Affiliated. And I had helped create a dance troupe for the holidays called the Top Hats. And Becky was one of the performers. And we actually didn't talk for many years after that. But thanks to Facebook, I had posted that I had tickets for a Coldplay concert. And Becky wanted to go. And I'm like, wow, okay. So we went and realized we had so much in common. We got along perfectly. And over time, I would share what I was working on because she had a very unique perspective being a mom and loving Disney, loving theme parks like I did. And so I would say, why don't we run over to the Disney store and I'm trying to brainstorm how to create more interactivity here. I was working for another firm called Fresh Juice that did technology and retail. And I realized she had good ideas. She was really good at helping me get through things. She was great at organizing. So I started bringing her to industry events. And she sort of became the first other, you know, Zeitgeist member. Kind of a natural producer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and people liked her. And I started realizing, wow, if you don't want to work with me, (laughs) because who does? You want to work with Becky. The the guys want to date her and the women want to be her. (laughs) And uh, and it was very true. And and I definitely thank Becky so much for uh, being there and working with me the last five or six years because she's brought a whole new element to the company and um, really we become a good team where uh, clients might want to talk to me or they might want to, you know, sit and quietly talk to her about me or whatever <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, but, the scope and scale of what, just what we've been able to collaborate on together just blows yeah. me away. The, yeah. the, I mean, so your what's your elevator pitch or the person sitting next to you on the airplane, you know, uh, so what do you do? What is, what is that guy's right? Well, what I think we are, because again, I've worked for pretty much everybody, both the brands and IPs and the owner operators and the design firms over now 31 years. Um, I think what makes us unique is that we are a boutique firm, uh, which means that we operate very efficiently and our overhead is fairly low and hopefully our fees are significantly less. And our team tends to be comprised of former senior level Disney Imagineers. Uh, I work a lot with 
uh, Tom Morris, with Chris Runco, with Joe Lance Cicero, with a lot of people that I met at Disney and have been friends with for 10, 20, 30 years. Other people that I've met along the way at all these companies mm-hmm. that you, you know, you know, yeah. there's, there's the clicks. Rolodex. Yeah. 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 Well, but, it, but also you, there's a, again, an yeah. emotional or a friendship that's formed Shared language. where you just, you yep. think alike, like you and me, yep. we just have so much in common that we want to work together. Yeah. So I've got Let's get in the sandbox again. Yeah. So I've got a, a lot of artists, master planners, writers, designers, you know, money, people, project managers, all kinds of people that we just have a shorthand now. We love working together and um, and we can do, I think, amazing stuff as good as or better than some of the bigger firms, mm. hopefully for less money. Yeah. Set up more actually faster. like a Hollywood production studio where you, yeah. you scale up, scale down. Based yeah. On and I prefer that because of my experience with Delaney Harmon, where I was sitting there selling MacBooks at 9 p.m. on Craigslist. And, and I vow, just like Scarlett O'Hara at the end of Gone with the Wind, you know, she vows and, and I vowed I'm never going to make this mistake again. Okay. And, uh, and I have not. You know, I operate much more efficiently, effectively, and I don't trust the clients all the time. I don't spend more than we've been sent. And knock on wood, uh, we have not had that experience again. <laughs> so I think uh, clients can trust that with us, they're going to get amazing, you know, world-class creativity and design for uh, a really good price, you know, quickly. And that we have the talent to take it all the way. Yeah. Um, well, I know that one of the challenges of our industry, uh, it's, at least it's true of Storyland Studios as well, is that so much of the work we do with recognizable brands and IPs, whether, especially for the big guys, Disney, Universal, you're, you're under these NDAs and you're not really allowed to share the work, right. uh, even whether it's built or unbilt, you know, it right. really uh, uh, is pretty limited what we're allowed to share on our portfolio. But uh, could are we allowed to talk about, uh, you know, what, at least one of the, the Chinese theme parks we've yeah. been able to collaborate on, um, the BBC Earth uh, Park. Which, yes. Uh, what a great brand. Oh, that was that, amazing. That, that uh, series, that documentary series is probably one of the finest bits of documentary yeah. filmmaking. And, you know, kind of reminds me of almost the impact of the original Walt Disney. I know, exactly. True life, nature. Yeah, yep, uh, exactly. Yep. Um, but uh, how long is, have you been on that journey with BBC? Um, we were, we met BBC, I want to say end of 2016. And they had uh, been approached by a Chinese developer to develop a park based on their BBC Earth series. And they had no idea how to do that or what that meant. And in this case, uh, in, in this industry, things can go two ways. Either a developer takes it upon themselves to design a park using whoever they want, or in this case, the brand um, decided to do it. So that way it was official and approved. So we met them and we did a very quick few week turnaround on a high concept and which I pretty much did myself <laughs> putting the whole deck together. And I think we may have had a brainstorming to get some ideation, but it was a really fast thing just so they could go to China mm-hmm. with an idea. And apparently they loved it. The client loved it. They came back and said, we want to work with you guys. We want you to do this entire park and we are going to do another park next door that at the time was an FEC based on their Top Gear IP, which is a car show that Mm -hmm. I didn't know at the time had been on TV for 37 years or whatnot. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it was funny because we'd be in meetings and they would ask me about it and then they'd say, you've never watched it, have you? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no. Sorry. <laughs> but I will. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, we got nine months, which is a, you know, an incredible amount of time, maybe too much time, to noodle through an entire Earth theme park and a Top Gear theme park. And from scratch, develop what is the entire guest experience from arrival to all of the lands, to each of the attractions. Uh, I obviously watched a lot of Top Gear and really <laughs> got the zeitgeist of that show and was able to not only put the FEC together, but create so many attractions that the BBC felt were so true to the brand that they asked the developer to double the budget and double the land because they felt that it would not truly be a top gear experience without these attractions mm -hmm. and which was wonderful to hear. So that project was finalized. The concept phase finished in May of 17 and we were told we were going to move into schematic design by July. That has not happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we, uh, we have heard that the Chinese government had elections last year in November, about a year ago, so that held things off. And then this past spring, the laws have changed that govern where resorts can be on the coastline. Mm. And also, apparently, they can't sell condominiums to people unless they live there. I'm just... I think this is what it is, about 60% of the time, which changed the entire plan forma, for the developer. Yeah, yeah. the foundation that all Right, because there were, now, there were yeah. 26 resorts right, right on the beach, and there were big condominiums that were probably going to be used for investment. So, yeah. uh, so that, those two parks, unfortunately, have been on hold, but we continue to be very good friends with uh, BBC, probably the best clients I've ever had. Just wow. so great, so fun, so respectful of the creative process. Uh, and so supportive of the vision. And we really there were hope definitely that, some amazingly big ideas there that uh, yeah. just will have to come to fruition. Someday. Well, and, and think about what bigger theme is there than the Earth. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's know? right. I mean, we had this opportunity to really planet. Yeah, and to and to create some messaging there, you know, about yeah. the environment, about um, what's happening in Africa with right. animals going extinct. Uh, China, unfortunately, is a big player in in some of the issues with the environment, especially yeah. with uh, decimating the animal population. And my feeling was if we can save a rhino or an elephant or you know yeah, something through this, through this park, yeah. um, then I've, I feel good about it. And so, I mean, the, the idea of developing these amazingly immersive uh, kind of biomes, you know, of, yes. uh, uh, kind of the blue planet, talking about the oceans and the frozen planet, right. about the poles and uh, the wild planet. And, and just to immerse people in that, uh, reality that's that uh, and then to to really lead them towards uh, wanting to uh, be involved with transformation and, right and uh, just it, again the the significance behind that in addition to just oh yeah the, the, yeah. the raw emotion and fun and immersiveness right powerful. and a lot of it was Marty Scalar's Mickey's Ten Commandments where one of them is ounce of treatment yeah. ton of treat and I had to that's something I, I live by all of Marty's rules and in this park, we did not want to get heavy into no education. Yeah. Right. But we know that in China, unlike the United States, parents do not tend to keep their children out of school on a school day to go to a theme park. 
So a lot of our parks do have what we call an interpretive program where there is an educational component. Maybe it's not obvious, but it can be tapped into through a mobile phone or there's another level to the park. And so we want school groups to come. So one of the big things about the BBC parks from the developer's point of view was we want school groups to fly in from the mainland because this is on Hainan Island and spend the night at our resorts and have an educational experience as well. So, um, so ultimately, that will be a big part of the BBC Earth Parks, whether it's indoors or outdoors. We're talking about potentially indoor versions as well. Wow. So, yeah, that's a brand I love, and um, I can't wait to finally <laughs> get, yeah. get into some real design on that. Well, I know how I feel as one of the kind of extended consultants, uh, you know, getting to play in the sandbox with you. Um, yeah. Uh, the park. I feel like you're the world's coolest club, you know, uh, doorman curator of of the crowd. I mean, the level of talent that you're able to bring uh, to the party is uh, yeah. just blows me away. Yeah, that's really something I've, I've some great company that we get to keep. Thanks. Yeah, I've gotten known a little bit, and, and a lot of that again is just people I've met along the way, and I just sort of have this way of reading people, and 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 certain people like working with me also because I do it the way we learned at WDI. You know, we do it the way the original Imagineers did it and put the emphasis in the right places. The wet way. Yeah, seriously, the wet (laughs) way, yeah. And and it's a struggle a lot because a lot of clients don't understand that, don't appreciate it. It's like we're building television sets and they will just put more people on it. We still need it next Tuesday. And it's like, it's not going to be good by next Tuesday. And we always argue the good, fast, cheap pick too. And it's a very true rule. Okay, you. I assume you want it to be good. I assume you don't want it to be $6 billion. So give us some time yeah. to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because throwing more money at it actually even doesn't make it better. It doesn't. Because <laughs> you need to go through the process. And, um, and we do the best we can. Uh, and one of my hardest lessons, I would say, that I'm still teaching some of my Imagineer friends is that sometimes you cannot be married to it and you can't, as much as you want to put your heart and soul into it and create something that Walt would be proud of, the clients don't want that. A lot of times Mm -hmm. they just want what they want and you just have to give them what they want. And sometimes I guess you do it for the paycheck, which is not something I ever thought I would say or do. But um, it's kind of a reality of today. And uh, we we look for the projects that we can put our heart and soul into and that it is appreciated and gets fulfilled. Um, Because the other challenge is today, a lot of clients don't see the value in keeping the design team involved through opening day. And at Disney and Universal, here's, you know, one of my secret recipes is that the reason they succeed is because they sell say mel mcgowan you are in charge of this dark ride you're going to come up with the idea you're going to design it i want you out in the field in waving your arms waving (laughs) your arms art directing it programming it riding it a thousand times till it fulfills your vision and you live and breathe that attraction for three to five years and that's a big chunk of your life to dedicate to one thing but that's how you get it right just like like a a director of a film yes i was going to say you don't let steven Spielberg do pre-production yeah. and then say, okay, you we're going to have the treatment or the script. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then you have someone come in. It ain't going to be a Steven Spielberg movie. Right. So there's this fallacy, uh, especially in Asia, that if the Western team designs it, it's going to be Disney or Universal yeah. quality. And then they're surprised when it fails. Yeah. Well, hello. <laughs> what, sometimes what their design expect? is 
coming over, going on an adventure, taking some uh, yeah Instagram pictures or Polaroids. <laughs> well, but even if we do a whole Science concept, yeah. we can do a full concept pack. I'll give you a, an example. We were given the opportunity to design a pirate-themed indoor FEC in China. Um, we did the full concept. We did the artwork, came up with the whole story. It was a sequence thing. They loved it. Uh, they asked us to do some schematic work. We did interiors. We did a lighting package. And um, sorry. And um, then we said, let us, you know, finish this. Let us come out and art direct it and work with your vendors. And uh, we don't have the money for that. So we're like, okay. And we did have some phone calls and they said, you know, you have specified for the flooring to be, you might know the name, the little rubber balls that you kind of melt in place where it creates a mm -hmm. squishy playground yeah. surface. Yeah, right. And I said, well, that's what it needs Safest to be. Safest fall zone. Right, because this is slides, this is running around, kids potentially getting hurt. And we were looking to theme the ground so it went from a castle, right. like a, a, do a, lot of color a fort. Patterns and stuff. Yeah, a fort to a beach that gave way to uh, the sea. So you wanted that beautiful gradient from the sand to the blue ocean then we went under the sea so that was a perfect vehicle for that so when becky and i finally went to shanghai to see it open they had done a great job it looked a lot like what we had conceived except they used tile oh, and geez. we're like you know besides the echo chamber That's they've created hurt. it's gonna hurt <laughs> it's yeah gonna hurt. so they it was beautiful though they used oh, really man. small tiles and they got the gradients it looked wow. great but it created an echo chamber and it was you know as hard as stone wow. and that's the kind of thing where one little decision had somebody been there um to do that it right. would have been more successful and kids wouldn't have gotten hurt <laughs> and you know so i know uh, for us that's been uh, it, it's been a fundamental strategic game changer, the, the willingness to, number one, um, make sure that uh, prospective clients are willing to invest in relationship on the front end. Right. Um, and, and then it's rough sometimes, but the ability on our end to be willing to say no if, if right. they're not willing or if it's not the right fit uh, because the dividends of being able to be in there uh, through from blue sky to building and for right. the, the journey it is. Uh... Hold up there, Skip. We'll be back with the rest of our interview in just a moment. But first, these words. Did you know that one in every three websites is built on WordPress? WordPress sites are super versatile. In fact, if your website is not on WordPress, you're losing out. You need the WordPress experts at My Studio Space LLC to help you out. Their friendly staff can build your new website, give your old site a facelift, or they can help you make those stubborn little changes that you simply don't have time for. My Studio Space will help you claim your domain, your custom email, and set up your entire site. Visit them on the web at mystudiospace.com or call 407-701-7577 to get started. And here's an outrageous special offer for you, our podcast listeners. Switch your hosting from GoDaddy to My Studio Space, and they'll pay you $100 cash. Just mention themed attraction when you call to redeem your offer. That's mystudiospace.com. Well, um, what a what a global journey, you know. And again, yeah, um, you know, when I follow your your Instagram shots and all the the global tours, you know, um, 
you know, I know that uh, one of the inspirations for a park we're working on right now uh, is one that uh, we've also been able to share, uh, Efteling. Oh, I've yeah. Gotta, I've got to do a little, because you're one of my few uh, uh, designer buddies that uh, has actually shared that experience. Uh, can I love you, We haven't talked about that yet on the podcast, yeah, but can right. you share about a little bit about what you love about Efteling and why it, it's a little uh, bit unique as a, for, I'm assuming most of our listeners have never even heard of the place. Yeah. Efteling but how is, is it different from Disney Universal corporate parks? Yeah. Efteling is a park located in the Netherlands, not far from Amsterdam. That was really the vision of one designer who's no longer with us. But when I was working for Warner Brothers, I was based in Germany for a while. And every weekend it was, let's go to Belgium, let's go yeah. to Amsterdam, let's go to Berlin, you know, let's go well, to Paris. Yeah. So I had the chance to go to Efteling. And again, Efteling is emotional. And yeah. again, this is what's missing in a lot of theme parks today and attractions is you went in and the entrance was just something from a storybook that you'd never seen realized in architecture. Yeah. And you walk through this park and it just broke so many rules yep. <laughs> in terms of what we find even decent. I mean, there were, there's giant, <laughs> um, giant donkeys that shoot coins out of their butts yeah, right. and, you know, just things that would not, ne we'd never see in America. Garbage cans that are children's uh, mouths and you're throwing <laughs> garbage away. Yeah. So, stuff that you know that every five-year-old boy would love. Yeah. Love. It, was just, it was like, wow, I've never seen the rules broken like this. I've never never seen such organic the trash cans are uh, named big mouth it's the character <laughs> of a guy you put the trash in right. and he thanks you yeah and then i found myself just walking through these forests and you know europe is magical to begin with but you're walking through these forests with massive trees that obviously had been there hundreds of years potentially with the sun rays kind of yeah. coming through and Double just the light. nature <laughs> was striking and then there's a show building you come across and it looks like it's a an arabian aladdin right. Thing or something, you're going, wow, this is weird. I didn't, there's no cue things. I'm not on concrete. It might have even been like decomposed granite or yeah, something yeah. we were walking across. But yeah, the magic, it was just this discovery trail where you'd These fall upon. walk through dark rides. Yeah, is, is just things you'd walk through. And then uh, the Dream World attraction mm -hmm. had opened. And a dream flight. Dream flight, or uh, it's called Dream Welt or yeah. Dream Welt in Dutch. <laughs> um, but again, that ride, blew my mind. It's like I'm in this beautiful fairy forest and it's all just about the emotion and the music and the visuals and you don't realize that you're ascending on the suspended vehicle and all of a sudden you reach the apex and you're almost in a, a cylinder and it mm -hmm. begins to mm -hmm. spin around the perimeter of this cylindrical building and you race back into the unload and you're like that was amazing like, uh, Peter Pan's flight turned to 11 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but there was no that was probably one of the first time also there was no IP right because again I grew up here with Disney Universal I was working on a Warner well, Brothers it's, it's park. original IP right? yeah. yeah so it was not based on movies or TV shows yet it was amazing right. so that showed me that you can have original content that is not film-based that can be awesome um, and when you thought about it, because I have this argument a lot, Jonathan Casson, I'm thinking about you, whether <laughs> IP or original is better. I was just going to ask you that. Or, and, or um, and I've spent so much of my career doing IP. But when you think about it, the best and most lasting Disney attractions are 
Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, Jungle Cruise, Matterhorn, Space Mountain, Big Thunder, and it goes on and on. None of these were based on a movie. Pirates became a movie. Haunted Mansion became a bad movie. (laughs) Jungle Jungle Cruise Cruise is going to be a movie. I hope that's good. But but again, these were not based on anything because they're more human stories or or put you in a magical time and place and transport you physically and emotionally. And that's what a theme park attraction is supposed to do. So just cram hungry, oh, it's called angry birds into uh, an FEC yeah. or, or a bunch of book report. Right? Yeah, I don't yeah. get that. You yeah. know, I, I argue a lot with Asian clients. They say we need IP. And I say, you don't need IP. It's going to cost you more. It's going to be a nightmare dealing with the IP. Is that the right color? Would that character really yeah. say that? You're going to pay out huge money to them. And uh, why do you need that? What if you did something based on magic? Yeah. or space or yeah. shrinking or there's so many great human stories to tell that you can tweak or make it like something but you don't need a movie or tv show to be successful well, that park really i mean maybe especially for the jaded uh, theme park uh, visitor that's won the disney bingo and been to every disney park in the world and yeah. all these corporate parks to literally just have that childlike winsome experience yes. of not knowing what's around the next corner. Yes. Having no idea what you're going to walk into every time right. you step into it. Yeah. It, was, it blew me away when I found out that that park is actually a, a Roman Catholic owned yeah, uh, nature nonprofit park. Really? To be wow. able to, to do this level of uh, magic and, wow. and, and excellence. And well, and the other revelation, amazing. I think, Mel, is that their budgets don't even touch the kind of budgets that we've worked with at Disney Universal, and yet they've achieved brilliance. And that also showed me, that. and one of my theories at Zeitgeist too, is that it doesn't cost more to build a great idea. We can figure out a way to be clever about it and give you a similar or the same emotional experience, maybe even physical experience, without spending $500 million on a land or an attraction. Yeah. Um, I think that goes back to... Also, that original Imagineering uh, I wed idea that we're just we're just guys trying to figure out the problem yeah. and solve it, and that means late nights. That means figuring out. That means creating new technology. It means all this yeah. this stuff that uh, I can't tell you. I can't write down in the book all the things that we're gonna do throughout this process project. Right. right. But when we get to the end, yeah, our, we're pretty smart people. Right. We're gonna figure this out. Well, one of the best examples of that is the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland where they knew where it wanted to go, but there was a train track there. (laughs) And again, through late nights and hard work, they figured, well, what if we went under the train track and we put the show building in the back? That way we don't have to pay to theme it. We can put a little facade out front and we don't have to take out the train. And so Pirates got a drop just because of the train track. Uh, Universal only got the King Kong and ultimately the Fast and Furious immersion tunnels because the original King Kong burned down. Oh, that's right. So, that's so right. I laugh now when clients come and they say, can you make an immersion tunnel? It's like, well, an immersion tunnel was created out of necessity because King Kong burned down. They had a different location and they wanted to save money, potentially not build a giant ape. And someone said, let's try it in 3D. Yeah. And suddenly this becomes a new type of attraction. Yeah. It's like the roller coaster, but it was out of necessity. It's an evolution. It right. goes from one thing to the next because of the necessity. Right. So, yeah, I love that. And, and again, that's not something that's understood or appreciated by most developers and clients today. Yeah. It's just, you know, here's what I want, design it. So, But that's how some of the best things come about. 
through that. So I'm curious too about the uh, the infill of theme park the theme parks into the rest of the world. You, a lot of your projects are in Asia and other places. I mean, how? What's the challenge? What's the difference? What's the what do you face when you're being called upon by a client? You mentioned a few things, kind of like, what, hey, they, they just think they need a Disney Imagineer. But but what more uh, is this world of theme parks going to move towards as as these multiply into all these places? I mean, well, where are, are we two going? Different questions. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, what, which one do you, I can do both. Let's start with the... So the, as far as around the world, I think... Yeah. Um, Obviously, books are one format or medium, movies are another, mm. themed entertainment is another, and now that a lot of these countries have money to spend on leisure experiences, yeah. Yeah. theme parks are sort of the natural evolution. And we're starting to see them, obviously, in China, in India, um, Russia. I was just called this week about doing a heavily themed experiential restaurant in Pakistan, mm. um, where I told them I probably won't be able to go work on site. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm excited that countries like that yeah. are looking to yeah. bring this kind of experience there. Um, and I think it's great because yeah. we all live in a world now where we're staring at our screens, unfortunately. And at least here, you know, the politics are overwhelming and we want an escape. And um, while the screen was a really cool thing 10 years ago, now it's become so ubiquitous that when you can actually put it down and be in real reality versus virtual reality, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it and, is. and especially for kids who play video games and they go through all these worlds. Well, especially as parents yeah. know, trying to keep that connection. That right, turn your, your phone kids. off yeah. and stand in Diagon Alley and it's amazing. This is real virtual reality, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, when I walked into Dagon Alley, I almost cried because it's like, they did it right. You know, it's, <laughs> it's emotional and there I've been transported. It's, it's totally immersive. So I think that kind of feeling as more and more people are traveling and seeing what America has to offer in Europe, they want to bring that home. Um, and the guy in Pakistan actually lived for six years in Florida and, you know, saw America, saw a lot of these things and wants to bring that kind of thing to his people. Yeah, so. I, I, that's the thing I love about it is there's this sort of, hey, we're, we're advancing. Our societies are advancing. We should have these, you know, this place like Saudi Arabia didn't have movie theaters right. until this year. Right. And so they're, they're suddenly opening their eyes to, hey, we should be offering this leisure to our people and, yeah. and, and making it available. And people are loving it. They're yeah, just, they're going out in droves. <laughs> and uh, so theme parks get to be that yeah. uh, next. So I film. think it's going to keep growing. Um, there are a lot of countries that have nothing. A lot can't afford the same level that yeah. we normally do. But again, a good idea doesn't have to cost more. Yeah. We can do something fun and immersive, you know, for them at whatever they can afford. Um, so that's, that's a fun challenge. And to answer the second question, if you ask me where I think things are going, yeah. I, for years, have been saying things are going more towards a Westworld uh, scenario where we want to be fully immersed, uh, get into cosplay, get into role-playing, mm -hmm. and be fully immersed overnight, yeah. and that being a key thing. And when Disney announced the Star Wars Hotel, I felt a little validated because I've been pitching this to... Uh, hotel chains even for a while saying you know that hotel you have in Jamaica that's sort of 60s looking let's 
turn it into a pirate village. Let's put pirate ships there. Let's make it a village. You go there, you wear pirate costumes. There's real rum bars. There's girls. There's, you know, we do sword fighting stunt shows. You can go sail on the pirate ships. There's buried treasure. There's, you know, you stay there for a week and you have a fully immersive experience as a pirate. And you can be a good pirate. You could be a bad pirate. But, and they're like, well, no, no, no. People just come to our hotels because they want that brand just experience. Sit on the beach. And I just want to slap them on the face and say, no, mm-hmm. in 10 years, you're going to be eating those words because yeah. things are going towards immersive overnight experiences. Yeah. And I truly feel that as much as I love the Harry Potter lands that Universal did, it should have it. been. Yeah. No, no, they didn't blow it. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's great. You, the but ability it, to spend the night. Well, it's now too Hogwarts late Castle. to build a Hogwarts hotel. Right. Because Hogwarts is sitting in Islands of Adventure. Right. You can't have two. And it should have been, I park my car, I get on the Hogwarts Express, I go to a f- almost full-size Hogwarts, I check into a room, yeah. I wear a robe, I, yep. I get the sorting hat and choose my thing, I take classes, I eat in the dining room, mysteries happen and special effects and paintings talk and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, there's things you can't do, but um, people would have paid $1,000 a night yeah, or more right. for that. So uh, I'm very excited where Disney's going, realizing that this is the next step in this uh, process. And I'm hopeful that people, companies that own existing resorts will take a chance. Mm-hmm. If they've already got the resort somewhere, the yeah. facility, change it up, theme it up, see how it goes. You know, I, I have a feeling if I could stay at Terra from Gone with the Wind in yeah, that's right. Louisiana, or I could stay in a pirate village or, you know, even in Africa, give me something really themed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did just come back from Costa Rica. Mm, and there is a gentleman who lives in Florida. Vida. I forgot his name, but he has built a hotel called The Springs and another one called The Peace Lodge. Mm. And while there's no story necessarily, these are what I'm talking about, the architecture you'd love. It's striking and it goes with Costa Rica and he's got live animals everywhere and tons of pools with waterfalls and water slides mm. and lighting and great food. And I mean, we went to both of these resorts for three or four nights and we never left because yeah. you don't want to leave. No. And, and how cooler <laughs> would it have been if it was a little more immersive and we learned about the people of Costa Rica or mm. the mythologies of Costa Rica. It was missing sort of that Alani mm-hmm. touch to it. But he's on the right track. And I left my card and said, please call me. I want yeah. to work with you. And I never heard from him. <laughs> Which side of the country is that on? A, uh, uh, it's in the center. Coast or, oh, no, it's, okay. just, it's in the mountains. Both oh, of them great. are, if you flew into San Jose, San Jose. What the Springs is, no, Peace Lodge is about 45 minutes or an oh, hour and a half so north up into the mountains. And then the Springs is a little farther. Oh, wow. But um Real waterfalls and paths and oh, yeah. horseback riding and I mean he he's adapting the natural yes. uh, place to give it its own uh, right its own brand on the right and in a in a way that appeals to the modern audience where I don't really want to sleep in an, an air conditioned room with screens right. and right. mosquitoes I had seventy five mosquito bites my second night in Costa Rica <laughs> so that's part of the game that's a gamify by uh, right. counting your mosquito bites but the fact that I could stay in this immersive beautiful place yet have a room as themed as it was uh, with air conditioning fully closed yeah. from bugs I mean we had a waterfall in our room it had two hot tubs it had full plants around the waterfall waterfall shower yeah. it was massive and and it's not cheap, but again, I think 
people people who work at Disney have told me that I forgot what the saying is, but they can't build a hotel room that's too expensive. People, I guess they built some of those Fiji style rooms yeah, um, on the right, legs, yeah. and they're like sold out every night, yeah. and they're outrageously yeah. priced. Yeah, but people have yeah. money. People yeah. are going to pay it. Yeah, they so, want that experience. Or, or there's there's never there's never enough room at the top. Something like that, mm-hmm. that you can always have a better wine or a more expensive iPhone or whatever it is. And It'll people suck. are paying a thousand bucks for an iPhone yeah. now. They used to be, what, $99? Yeah. <laughs> for memories and for experience. Yeah, so, yeah. So, and, and I think for our generation, and in our brochure, there's a quote that 68 or 78% of millennials or younger people today would choose an experience over a material thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm finding that right now. It's almost November. It's time to go holiday shopping for my kids. And I'm thinking they have so many toys they don't play with. They mostly like to stare at their screens and play games, but they would much prefer to go on a trip. They, I took them skiing last mm-hmm. year. They love that. I'd much rather put the money into bonding time and take them places yeah. where they have an experience and learn something than just giving them a... a action figure or <laughs> right. cards it just gets thrown in the back of the closet yep. and we never see it again yeah that's right. so i really feel that you know our generation doesn't i have a lot of stuff on my shelves because i inherited it but younger people today i don't think are buying stuff to put on put shelves on shelf. that's it's, right you know do you need wedding china anymore mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. anyone who uses i've never <laughs> used wedding china in my life and i have a whole bunch down there so yeah. i just don't i think the world is changing and experiences, and especially these overnight immersive opportunities to be somebody and play a role um, is where it's at. And that's the first developer who understands that and actually spends the billions of dollars required to create basically a Westworld with a, another theme, I think is going to start a new trend and be very wow. successful. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for opening your uh, amazing home. I, I, again, I, I'm still blown away by the hand-hewn uh, rafters and I mean just this 1920s Hollywood land old LA kind of vibe uh, here and um, you know just uh, what a great spirit of just fun and creativity and we've shared some great times at Disneyland I think we're yes. going to have to do a, a follow up this has been a little taste test of just the journey through space and time even in you know prognosticating the future of right. uh, themed entertainment but uh, it'd be fun to maybe even get together uh, either at our studio or in the parks yeah. and, and kind of uh, continue the conversation. Yeah, so, that would be really fun. Yeah, thanks so much for yeah, you're uh, welcome. all the fun over the years and, and over the next last few minutes. Yeah, and if, and if I were to offer some advice to your listeners, um, I would say what we used to say in Imagineering, and I used to write the responses to a lot of letters from people that would write in saying, how do I become an Imagineer? And uh, what you we probably was, wrote my response. <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> one, of, one of my best friends, John Pucci, I met him because he wrote me a fan letter nice. from Disney yeah. Magazine, and he lived in Orlando, wanted to be an Imagineer. Yeah. And I was heading out there, and I thought, let's have dinner. And he ended up being in my wedding, and I just wow. saw him three nights ago. I mean, That's it's great. been 25 years, and we're still good friends. Awesome. So, um, yeah, I think what everybody needs to do is sort of, you, you are born with some talent mm-hmm. or interest, and mine, weird as it was, was writing. I remember sitting as a kid, watching my friends playing kickball on the street, yet preferring to sit inside and write stories and draw pictures Mm. that then I created a book club and I sold them to my grandparents. (laughs) So I was an entrepreneur. (laughs) But but find what you're good at and what you love and just 
stick with it, develop that talent, fulfill it, find ways to do it professionally and to get paid for what you love. And if theme entertainment is something you desire, are you more of an engineer? Are you a architect? Are you an artist? Are you a designer? Are you a writer? There's so many dozens of disciplines that all play a major role in creating what we do. And, um, you know, just find in opportunities and intern. One of my biggest things is yeah, find yeah, someone yeah, intern. to intern, find yeah. a... Um, Interning at the right places can be so much even more important yeah, than and, which school you went to. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And find a mentor too. I mean, people like me, I love helping people. There's quite a few people in this industry who have become big, well-known talents who I gave them their first jobs. Gwendolyn Ballantyne is a neighbor of mine and a good friend. And she approached me at Warner Brothers in 94 as a student at CalArts and wanted to work in theme parks. Wow. And I hired her and now she's one of the best artists and art directors in the industry. So um, I love giving opportunities and so do other people. So you've just got to pursue it. And especially for our industry, getting involved in the next gen at the TEA, Theme Entertainment Association, and coming to the mixers, meeting people, sharing your interests and your portfolio. Uh, all that is important. Even working in a park, um, oh, if yeah. you have one in your own city, is uh, will give you the operations experience mm -hmm. you need. So many people I know started as balloon salesmen or yeah, Tom, Tom Morris. Morris yeah, Tom, yeah. yeah. Tony Baxter started selling ice cream, I think, on Main Street. Yeah. Um, and this this gives you an insight that you wouldn't have. So you have these opportunities, take advantage of them, and the sky's the limit. Just oh, follow cool. your dreams. <laughs> follow your dreams. Oh, we should tune up the music, the right music right there. <laughs> Don't stop believing. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, thank you so much thank for this you. time. Uh, really exciting to hear from you, and uh, we definitely want to have you on again this week. Yeah, morning. that'd be great. be awesome. Uh, tell us where people can uh, find you, follow you. What's the best Our way Our website is zeitgeist-usa.com. And my email's on there. It's just ryan at zeitgeist-usa.com. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll have some exciting things to announce in the, the months ahead. Awesome. So, Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Uh, that was great. Ryan is a wealth of knowledge and experience. It's great to hear somebody who started um, from the very, very uh, beginning, very bottom, youngest Imagineer moving on to uh, creating his own company and creating amazing worlds uh, uh, with some of the greats in the industry right now. Um, very excited to see that his vision for the future is a lot like some of the visions for the future we've had. I mean, even back to our own childhood, as we've talked about, um, you know, thinking about how Hollywood Studios right now is going to build a Star Wars hotel that goes right into the park and you're going to be able to land on that planet and stay there overnight. Um, what do you think? I mean, is this what is going to resonate with people now? Well, like I said, it's definitely part of my lifelong passion, you know, and, and letting people uh, extend just that eight-hour immersive uh, experience into at least a 24-hour uh, experience. Again, spend the night in Disneyland, spend the night in the Grand Californian and in, uh, in the midst of a California adventure, uh, spend the night in Star Wars land. But to me, yeah, the the, the more that technology allows us to, to be virtual <laughs> and uh, virtually immersed in digital realities, I think that actually makes us hungrier to, to mm -hmm. be able to get out and uh, spend more time uh, and spend the night uh, and spend several nights uh, in uh, visceral, physical 
um, multi-sensory environments. It speaks to all five of the senses as opposed to primarily visually. Um, so, holodeck, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, i am uh, got my Jedi outfit ready. I'm going to uh, dive right in myself, I'm sure. Well, we better turn this boat around and head home. Until next time, thanks a lot, Mel. Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Our guest was President of Zeitgeist Design and Production, Ryan Harmon. Check out their work at zeitgeist-usa.com. You can also follow Zeitgeist around the world at zeitgeist underscore USA on Twitter. Get access to more stories and interviews at ThemedAttraction.com, the world's most comprehensive site on theme park and themed entertainment design. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at skipperfreddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Mel, Barry once told me his mother-in-law is a cannibal. He's pretty sure she doesn't like him, though, because every time he goes over to her house for dinner, she gives him the cold shoulder. Thanks for listening, folks. 